From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Democrats who would be president debate in Las Vegas, and global warming and policies to deal with the threat come front and center. I have uh, put forward a plan to move America forward to a 100% clean electric grid by 2050. We did not land a man on the moon with an all-of-the-above strategy. It was an intentional engineering challenge, and we solved it as a nation. And our nation must solve this one. Democratic solutions to the climate crisis. Also, with unusual warmth in the Pacific off the West Coast, the crisis facing one small seabird. We thought releasing 19 MERS, we were actually going to start seeing a decrease in the number in care, and then we got 30 in yesterday. So we're not at the end of this. We just got to be keep going until, until all these birds have been taken care of. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The recent debate among the Democratic Party candidates for president, hosted by CNN in Las Vegas, set a precedent for the debate season and perhaps the campaign as well. Every one of the candidates directly addressed climate change. And unlike the two Republican debates so far, where it was scarcely mentioned, four of the five Democratic contenders referred to it in their opening remarks. But they differed about global warming's importance. When CNN moderator Anderson Cooper asked the candidates to name the greatest threat to national security, former Rhode Island Governor and Senator Lincoln Chafee cited the chaos in the Middle East. What worried former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton the most was the risk of terrorists getting nuclear weapons, and former Virginia Senator James Webb named China cyber warfare in the Middle East. Former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley also couldn't choose just one, pointing to the climate, along with Iran and ISIL. But Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders declared for him there is one overriding threat to national security. The scientific community is telling us if we do not address the global crisis of climate change, transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to sustainable energy, the planet that we're going to be leaving our kids and our grandchildren may well not be habitable. That is a major crisis. Later in the debate, CNN's Don Lemon turned to a videotaped question for Martin O'Malley from Anna Bettis of Tempe, Arizona. As a young person, I'm very concerned about climate change and how it will affect my future. As presidential candidate, what will you do to address climate change? So, Governor O'Malley, please tell Anna how you would protect the environment better than all the other candidates up on that stage. Yeah, Anna, I have uh, put forward a plan, and I'm the only candidate, I believe, in either party to do this, to move America forward to a 100% clean electric grid by 2050. We did not land a man on the moon with an all-of-the-above strategy. It was an intentional engineering challenge, and we solved it as a nation. And our nation must solve this one. So. I put forward the plan that would extend the investor tax credits for solar and for wind. If you go across Iowa, you see that 30% of their energy now comes from wind. We're here in Las Vegas, one of the most sustainable cities in America, doing important things in terms of green building, architecture, and design. 
We can get there as a nation, but it's going to require presidential leadership. And as president, I intend to sign as my very first order in office the, an order that moves us as a nation and dedicates our resources to solving this problem and moving us to a 100% clean electric grid by 2050. Governor, we can do Governor it. Governor O'Malley, thank you very much. Uh, Senator Webb, you have a very different view than just about anybody else on the stage, and unlike a lot of Democrats, you're pro-coal, you're pro-offshore drilling, you're pro-Keystone pipeline. Are again, are you, the question is, are you out of step with the Democratic Party? Well, the, the question really is, how are we going to solve energy problems here and in the global environment if you really want to address climate change. <clears throat> when I was in the Senate, I was an all-of-the-above energy uh, voter. We introduced legislation to bring in alternate energy as well as nuclear power. I'm a strong proponent of nuclear power. It is safe. It is clean. And really, we are not going to solve climate change simply with the laws here. We've done a good job in this country since 1970. If you look at China and India, they're the greatest polluters in the world. 15 out of the 20 most polluted cities in the world are in one of those two countries. We need to solve this in a global way. It's a global problem, and I have been very strong on, on doing that. The, the agreements, the so-called agreements that we have had with China are illusory in terms of the immediate requirements of the, of the Chinese government itself. So let's solve this problem in an international way, and then we really will have a, a way to address Climate change. Senator Sanders, are you tougher on, on climate change than Secretary Clinton? Well, I will tell you this. Uh, I believe, and Pope Francis made this point, this is a moral issue. Uh, the scientists are telling us that we need to move extremely boldly. I am proud that along with Senator Bo Barbara Boxer a few years ago, we introduced the first piece of climate change legislation which called for a tax on carbon. And let me also tell you, that nothing is going to happen unless we are prepared to deal with campaign finance reform because the fossil fuel industry is funding the Republican Party, which denies the reality of climate change and certainly is not prepared to go forward aggressively. This is a moral issue. We have got to be extremely aggressive in working with China, India, Russia, Se the planet, Thank the you, future Senator. of the planet is at stake. Secretary Clinton, I want you to be able to respond and then I'm going to go to Dana. Well, that, that's exactly what I've been doing. Um, when we met in Copenhagen in 2009, and literally, President Obama and I were hunting for the Chinese, going throughout this huge convention center, because we knew we had to get them to agree to something. Because there will be no effective efforts against climate change unless China and India join with the rest of the world. They told us they'd left for the airport. We found out they were having a secret meeting. We marched up, we broke in, we said, we've been looking all over for you, let's sit down and talk about what we need to do. And we did come up with the first international agreement that China has signed. Thanks to President Obama's leadership, it's now gone much Thank further. You. And I do think that the bilateral agreement that President Obama made with the Chinese was significant. Thank you, sir. Now, it needs to go further, and there will be an international meeting at the end of this year, and we must get verifiable commitments to fight climate change from every country gathered Dana there. Bash. In that exchange, Senator Sanders referred to carbon tax legislation he and California Democrat Barbara Boxer offered in the Senate in 2013, when, by the way, the price of gasoline in the U.S. was about three fifty a gallon. Senator Sanders explained the carbon tax plan in detail to Living on Earth at the time. Here's a portion of that interview. So the centerpiece of your bill is what you're calling a fee and dividend on carbon emissions 
How would that work? Well, the good news here is that what we are doing is focusing on the 3,000 largest emitters of greenhouse gas in the country, uh, putting a fee of uh, $20 per ton of carbon or methane equivalent. So this would be what, at the oil refinery? Coal mines, the oil refineries, the natural gas processing plants, uh, or at the the point of importation as well, which would deal with about 85% of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So this is not going to be a fee which impacts tens and tens and tens of thousands of entities. It's kind of what we're calling upstream, where the emissions take place. So how exactly would it work? How would you impose this? Look, here's the point. Here's the point before we get into all of the details. The important issue to understand right now is that according to the scientific community, we stand the danger of seeing the planet Earth temperature rise by 8 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of this century. If that happens, and we've talked to many of the leading scientists who study this issue, what they are telling us is this will cause catastrophic, underlying catastrophic damage to the planet. What we already know is that 12 out of the last 15 years have been the warmest on record. We already know that we're looking at unprecedented levels of drought, of floods, of extreme weather disturbances like Hurricane Irene or Hurricane Sandy. We're looking at the continent of Australia burning up. We're looking at heat waves in Europe that people have never seen before. The most important issue before we worry about every you know line of any legislation is Is the Congress of the United States going to wake up and say, we have a planetary crisis here and we have got to address it? And if you asked me, you know, and I deal with a lot of issues out there, my greatest embarrassment for being a member of the United States Congress right now, it is that you have a major political party, the Republican Party, who refuses to listen to what the scientists are saying. You have the ranking member former ranking member of the Environmental Committee, telling us, if you can believe it, that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by Al Gore and the Hollywood elite and the United Nations. I mean, that's where we are. And my fear is that if Congress does not get our act together, you're going to see more and more extreme weather disturbances, more and more problems, which will cost this country and this planet a hell of a lot more than the legislation that Barbara Boxer and I have introduced. This carbon fee, this effective carbon tax, where would the money raised from these fees go? Good question. Uh, Among other things, a lot of the money, uh, actually a majority of the money, would go back to the people of the United States to help them with any increased energy costs they may incur as we begin to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel. Will some people be forced to pay more for fuel? They will. And a lot of the money that we're raising, it's, uh, we expect to raise about $1.2 trillion over a 10-year period. The majority of that money goes right back to the American people to help them pay for increased fuel costs. Significantly, we also put a whole lot of money in weatherization. We would weatherize a million homes a year. We would put money into research and development for breakthroughs in energy. How can we move more aggressively to sustainable energy? A lot of research being done out there. And we want to be cutting edge in that. We would also invest in uh, worker training to make sure that we had the people available to do the work that we need to transform our energy system. 
So by the way, this also becomes a jobs program because we can put a whole lot of people to work in energy efficiency and weatherization and in sustainable energy. So quickly to bring it down to the individual who's listening to this, maybe he works in Wyoming, drives his truck 100 miles a day to get to work and is worried about the price of gas going up. How does it help him? It helps him because we'd be creating a nation in which his grandchildren and his children would be able to live comfortably. If we do nothing, if we do nothing, the projections are that the droughts that we're seeing in the southwestern part of this country, the forest fires that we're seeing, will only intensify. So the main point to be made is we don't have much of a choice on this. If we want this planet to be habitable for our kids, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, we have to act. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders speaking in 2013 about how he would tax carbon to fight climate change. Incidentally, the bill didn't pass. One final note from the first debate among the Democrats. Lincoln Chafee didn't get much of an opportunity to lay out his climate plans, but there was one question where he didn't miss a beat. You've all made a few people upset over your political careers. Which enemy are you most proud of? (laughs) I guess the coal lobby. I've worked hard for climate change, and I want to work with the coal lobby, uh, but in my time in the Senate, tried to bring them to the table so that we could address carbon dioxide. I'm proud to uh, be at odds with the coal lobby. Thanks to CNN for the audio, and the Democrats' next debate is on November 14th. Coal powered the industrial world for almost two centuries, but in the U.S. it's now in a precipitous decline, undercut by cheaper natural gas from fracking and its climate and health hazards. Miners have died by the thousands underground, and on April 5th of 2010, the worst American mine disaster in 40 years occurred at Massey Energy's upper Big Branch mine in West Virginia. A huge explosion ripped through the mine, destroying the rail lines underground and killing 29 of the 31 men working there. West Virginia's governor, Joe Manchin, went to the scene. Rails, train rails that go back in look like they've been twisted like a pretzel. That's horrific. That's an explosion that is just beyond proportion. In that disaster, miner Tommy Davis lost his brother, his nephew, and his son, Corey. He remembered the last time he saw his boy. I kind of turned around and walked away from him. hard, hey, Bubba. He's like, what, Dad? I said, love you, buddy. It's love you too, old man. I'm going to go cut me some coal. That's my last words I heard from him. Well, Don Blankenship, former CEO of Massey Energy, is now on trial in connection with that mine catastrophe. Blankenship was one of the most powerful coal barons who brooked no delays and opposed federal safety regulation of his industry, as he told thousands of miners and their families at a Labor Day picnic in 2009. As someone who has overseen the mining of more coal than anyone else in the history of central Appalachia, I know that the safety and health of coal miners is my most important job. I don't need Washington politicians to tell me that, and neither do you. But I also know, I also know that Washington and state politicians have no idea how to improve miner safety. The very idea that they care more about coal miner safety than we do is as silly as global warming. 
Don Blankenship speaking in 2009. Well, to mark the start of the former CEO's criminal trial for allegedly lying about violating safety standards at the Upper Big Branch Mine, Tim Murphy, a writer for Mother Jones magazine, published a profile called The Fall of the King of Coal. Tim Murphy joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. So you call your piece The Fall of the King of Coal. Who is Don Blankenship, and how did he become the king of coal country in the first place? Don Blankenship is, I think, as he would like you to believe, a simple man from Mingo County, West Virginia, which is one of the poorest counties in the United States on the border with Kentucky along the Tug Fork River. You know, his mom ran a gas station and pulled the family up by its bootstraps. He was an accountant who worked at a coal mine to pay his way through college and, and then ended up rising through the ranks of a company called Massey, which at one point was a family coal company. And with Blankenship at its helm, it grew into the largest coal producer in central Appalachia and one of the largest coal companies in the United States. And Blankenship did all of this by running it essentially with an iron fist and starting to control, developing control of the political culture of West Virginia. He helped build the West Virginia Republican Party basically up from scratch to the point where it now runs the state legislature and has a number of national elected positions in the state. And he did this also by flouting federal mine safety rules and by crushing the labor union. So he, he very handily built a pretty notorious reputation, even, you know, in an industry that has not always, you know, had a great reputation. Now, in this piece, you have a picture of Blankenship's estate, and it's this giant castle atop a beautiful West Virginia mountain. But of course, he was known for tearing off the tops of those same mountains for strip mining. What was Don Blankenship's attitude towards the environment there in West Virginia? I don't think he really put too much thought into the environment in Massey's case. And, you know, they have, you know, a number of, of former, they're called mountaintop removal sites, otherwise known as surface mining sites that have been reclaimed, which is the word that they use. And essentially you spray a chemical product called hydroseed that, you know, plants all these non-native grasses on what has gone from being a, a scenic Appalachian knob into something more like a golf course. So that's essentially the end product of a mountain top removal site if it's effective. But in Massey Energy's case, some of their subsidiaries also had a lot of issues in terms of what happened with their coal waste. So for instance, one of the largest environmental disasters in American history was in eastern Kentucky, just across the river from where Don Blankenship grew up. And in that case, a site owned by Massey had a ton of coal slurry that was contained, you know, it's essentially like a dam uh, right. of coal waste and the dam burst and it went out through an underground abandoned mine that was also owned by the company and ended up shutting down the water supply in about 10 counties in eastern Kentucky. Now, Don Blankenship is also known for his hostility towards organized labor. What was his relationship like with the Coal Miners Union, the United Mine Workers of America? Well, there's an irony to his relationship with the United Mine Workers, which is that the union really had its baptism in his backyard. And he grew up just down the street from the town of Matewan, West Virginia, which has been immortalized on the big screen as really one of the, the pivotal moments in American labor history where there was a, an open air shootout between United Mine Worker sympathizers and agents of, of the state and the mine companies. So, you know, there, were, there was actual bloodshed in the area's history over the right to organize. And Blankenship comes into this context and he really makes his name with the company as, you know, he started off as an office manager and he was the president of a, of a small subsidiary at the time. And the United Mine Workers declared a strike 
against Massey and Blankenship ended up sort of at ground zero of the strike. And he held the line for about nine or 10 months. And he likes to point to a TV that he owns that's covered in bullet holes that he says came from the union. It was a, it was an often violent encounter between the company and its guards and the labor union. But at the end of the strike, Don Blankenship had won. And, you know, essentially from that point forward, uh, Masty was not a friendly place for unions. So now Don Blankenship is on trial for a horrific disaster that occurred at his upper big branch mine five years ago. What happened? What happened, according to MSHA, the Mine Safety you know, Health Administration, is that there was an accumulation of gas in the mine and a piece of shearing equipment hit a spark and the shearing equipment used to cut through the, the long wall section of the mine to get at the coal seam. You know, there's an enormous amount of friction there. And so if it's not maintained properly, then you're going to get sparks coming from it. You know, the piece of machinery hitting the wall. And in this case, that smart spark, you know, created an explosion in the mine. I understand that the safety equipment that would have detected the large amount of gas in the mine was somehow disabled or dysfunctional. Yeah, and according to the federal government and according to the state's own independent investigation of the mine after the fact, virtually everything that could have gone wrong in this situation really did go wrong. I mean, there were issues with the safety equipment. There were issues with the state of the mine. It was just covered in combustible coal dust, which you're required by law to clean up. And so the conditions of the mine were not right. The conditions for what happens if something goes wrong were not right. And the end result was that 29 people died and it was the worst mine disaster in 40 years. What was the company's attitude towards workplace safety? What was that like? The company has really made a point during Blankenship's tenure to emphasize that safety was its number one priority. Uh, The term that Blankenship and the company used was S1. That was their policy, S1. Uh, Safety is number one. And implemented a number of things that sort of gave the illusion of safety. So for instance, they had a program that was essentially a rewards program for miners. And if you continued to accumulate days without an injury on the job that didn't cause you to miss work, you would accumulate points. And you could take those points and bring them essentially to the company store and buy things like hunting gear. The result, of course, was a perverse incentive. And and so if you had an injury at a Massey mine, there was really an incentive from your colleagues to not report injuries so that you could use these points to get stuff that you couldn't otherwise get. You know, there was, uh, there were cases, I think, of you know, miners getting hurt on the job and Massey management following them to the emergency room and requesting that they not take time off for work, informing them instead, you know, that they could simply sit in the break room all day, but they just didn't want to see their numbers take a hit from the lost time. They were notorious, especially under Don Blankenship's tenure up for relentless focus on the bottom line. He demanded reports from his mine superintendents about every half hour. And if he saw that coal wasn't moving in a mine, say, because they were working on a piece of safety construction, he would get on the phone. In the case of the upper big branch mine where this disaster happened, that phone was literally a red phone. It was as if they were getting a call from the premier. And when you get a call from Don Blankenship, according to you know, various workers who have worked in these mines and, and testified to the federal government, you didn't ignore what he said. You, you went and did exactly that. Now, you quote in your article, uh, you quote Don Blankenship at a rally seven months before the Upper Big Branch disaster saying, Washington and state politicians have no idea how to improve miner safety. The very idea that they care more about coal miner safety than we do is as silly as global warming. 
But I take it he wasn't a big fan of federal regulations. He wasn't. And I think that really gets to the core of his significance in kind of the era in which he operated. He managed to take a state in which, you know, mining was heavily unionized, a state that had voted Democratic since the New Deal. And he managed to hammer home again and again and again that the reasons for the decline of the coal industry came from Washington and that it came from regulations. And that was kind of at the core of his political message and something that he continued to hammer on even up until the point where he was indicted. You know, he spent a lot of money in the political arena uh, to push this anti-regulatory message while his companies were, in in some cases, really making the case for regulation. And I gather he was quite a promoter of uh, skepticism or denial around global warming. He was, yeah. I think his comments sound very similar to those of someone like Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe. After he left Massey Energy and shortly before he was indicted, he put out his own documentary, which pushed global warming skepticism. It was called Reg Session, and it it made the case, you know, essentially that EPA regulations and and those kinds of things were driving America's economy into the gutter. Uh, But but at the core of that argument is that there's no point to the regulations and and that things like global warming are really just a hoax, you know, perpetrated by folks like Al Gore. So he does get indicted, as powerful as his political connections are and such. A federal indictment is brought against him. What's the case like against Don Blankenship? Well, I should say the indictment in itself is kind of unprecedented almost in every instance where there has been prosecution in the aftermath of a disaster. And they've gone after, you know, a mine foreman or or something like that. So on one level, the case against Blankenship is something that's new and might give people in southern West Virginia a lot of hope that the government is finally cracking down. But then if you look at the indictment, you know, the case actually looks a lot different. What they're actually really going after Blankenship on isn't on coal miner deaths. There's nothing about 29 deaths in a coal mine in this indictment or in this case. In fact, Blankenship's lawyers have moved to make that something that isn't even mentioned at the trial because the government isn't doing anything about this upper big branch disaster. What they're trying to send him away for is lying to federal investigators and lying to the SEC about his company's safety record. So it's not that he ran rough coal mines that racked up tons of violations and had a number of fatalities. It's that he wasn't being honest with Wall Street. And that's the one that threatens to send him away for about, I think, 26 of the 30 years that he's facing. So let me see if I have this right. He's been indicted because he said things to investors about mine safety that turned out not to be true, according to the government. And so the Securities and Exchange Commission comes into play here. I imagine investors are quite angry given the price of coal equities has really just crashed in recent years. Some of the biggest companies have seen almost all of the value of the stock go away. Yeah, and that's sort of the irony. I was talking to some miners in Maywan, West Virginia, when I was down there. And, you know, obviously the situation for coal miners is pretty bleak right now. But as they put it, you know, Don Blankenship was reading his company's obituary in the newspapers that week just because Alpha Natural Resources, which is a company that bought Massey a few years back, declared bankruptcy just two months ago. They, they filed for bankruptcy. So the company that bought Massey for $7.5 billion is now bankrupt and looking to radically restructure its business. So over the last four or five years, since Upper Big Branch, the industry has cratered, hundreds of mines have closed, you know, thousands of workers have been laid off. So in some level, you know, the indictment feels sort of like a, a bookend in the current age of King Cole. Tim Murphy is a writer for Mother Jones. 
His latest piece is called The Fall of the King of Coal. Thanks so much, Tim, for taking the time with us. Thank you. Time now to check in with Peter Dykstra and check out the news lurking beyond the headlines. Peter's with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org, and joins us from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. Remember that climate change-themed Hollywood production from about a decade ago, The Day After Tomorrow? Yeah, a disaster scenario about abrupt climate change. I recall that the critics were split on it, but the scientists weren't. The scientists thought it was awful, and so did I. It was heroic climate scientist Dennis Quaid, an over-the-top fictionalization of Vice President Cheney, and Jake Gyllenhaal can't get a cab in Manhattan because it's under 70 feet of ice, but Jake still gets the girl. The total shutdown of ocean currents causes an Arctic deep freeze in a matter of days, in a way that's possible only in the imaginations of Hollywood writers. But a new study in Nature Scientific Reports says a much less extreme version of the day-after-tomorrow scenario is possible if the system of air and water currents over the North Atlantic should shut down. And what happens in the North Atlantic doesn't stay in the North Atlantic, right? Right. In that scenario, much of Europe and North America would get colder while the rest of the world heats up. Scientists from the University of Southampton say the process might take up to a century, but its potential consequences, including exaggerated sea level rise on the U.S. East Coast, could be huge. Scientists have known about this possibility for a long time, but now there's a new focus on it. Well, we don't want life to imitate a bad movie. What's next? I want to turn to the seemingly unstoppable growth of wind power and a man who just doesn't seem to get the media attention he deserves, Donald Trump. Whoa, you're saying Donald Trump doesn't get enough media attention? No, I didn't say Donald Trump doesn't get enough media attention. I said Donald Trump doesn't get the media attention he deserves. Last week, the Donald's British attorneys took his anti-wind farm campaign to the UK Supreme Court. He built a golf resort on the Scottish coast, which involved plowing up moors and sand dunes to install 18 holes in a hotel where those dunes and moors used to be. But the view of a planned offshore wind farm has Trump in an uproar. So what's new? Well, in this case, he's worried that the golfers amidst those former moors and sand dunes will see this quote-unquote monstrous blight those wind turbines would be, and Trump is trying to get the permit for the 11 windmills overturned in the latest round of a long-running battle. And however it turns out, I suppose this does count as foreign policy experience. Hey, what's our environmental history note for this week? A couple of things about whales, one from the 19th century and one from the end of the 20th century. In October 1851, Herman Melville published one of the books that's sometimes called the great American novel, Moby Dick, in which an angry white sperm whale squared off against an obsessive whaling captain who manages to track down the exact same whale that bit his leg off years earlier. Well, he did have all that 19th century technology to find that same whale in a very large ocean. And Captain Ahab manages to lose his boat and his crew in the process. It sounds a bit like reality TV, doesn't it? I've always thought Melville's skill was in portraying both his main characters as bad guys. Or at least a bad guy and a mad marine mammal. 
Point taken. Well, in October 1988, it was our turn to obsess over whales as winter closed in around Barrow, Alaska. A cameraman for Barrow's community TV station came upon three California gray whales trapped in the Arctic ice. If they couldn't break free, the whales would die. The drama captured the town's attention, then it captured the world's attention, and we went crazy over these three whales. Reporters and whale rescuers descended upon this Arctic town. The Soviet Union sent a nuclear icebreaker to free the whales, and it's believed two of the three gray whales eventually cleared the ice and swam south for the winter. Some scientists tried to spoil the fun by pointing out that about 200 gray whales get trapped like this every year, but not in front of a camera and without the international attention or an eventual movie deal starring Drew Barrymore. Leave it to the scientists to let facts get in the way of a great story. Every time. (laughs) Peter Dysters with Environmental Health News, SEHN.org and TheDailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter. Talk to you soon. All right, Steve, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next time. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, warming oceans, the blob, and the fallout for a small seabird. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The latest observations by NASA scientists indicate a strong El Nino has taken hold in the Pacific and will affect rainfall, sea temperatures, and storm activity into next year. Already, warmer water is adding pressure to one of the ocean's most important and fragile habitats, coral reefs. Reefs are enchanting and beautiful, but also provide coastal protection from storms and nurseries for fish. But now the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, has announced that the world's corals are turning a ghostly white, only the third such bleaching event on record. Mark Aiken is the coordinator for NOAA's Coral Reef Watch Program. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be with you. So what happens during a coral bleaching event? Well, a coral is animal, vegetable, and mineral. So what happens in a coral bleaching event is that the animal part has microscopic algae living in its tissues. And the combination of those two builds the limestone skeleton that makes the massive coral reefs that they're known for. Well, when the temperature gets too high, the photosynthesis, the processes that make energy from sunlight in the algae, start to run too fast. And that releases toxins into the coral. And so the coral will eject the algae into the water So that robs the coral of the algae that give them most of their food and give them their color. And you can see right through to the white skeleton, and that's why it looks bleached. So the coral is still alive, but it's sick and it is starving. Now, we're in the middle of the third worldwide coral bleaching that uh, modern science has recorded. When and where did it start and which reefs are most affected? So this event actually started in June of 2014, and we've had continuous bleaching of corals in various parts of the Pacific since that time. 
It started in the western North Pacific in the U.S. territories of Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. And while that was going on, we started seeing bleaching in Hawaii, especially in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, but even getting down into the main Hawaiian Islands. This was only the second time they've seen bleaching in the main Hawaiian Islands. From there, waters started to warm in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. They saw the worst bleaching they've ever seen. It moved into the South Pacific, and you were seeing the bleaching from the west over in Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, down to the south in uh, Fiji, and to the east in uh, the Samoas. Then we started seeing this El Nino kick in. Bleaching started across the Central Pacific in the islands of Kiribati, the Phoenix, Gilbert, and Line Islands, and bleaching over in the Galapagos. After that, we started seeing a normal cycle that leads to this global pattern, where the atmosphere caused the Indian Ocean to start warming up. We saw bleaching in the Indian Ocean a little bit into Southeast Asia and the Coral Triangle. And then once we got around to Northern Hemisphere, summer to fall, bleaching started in Florida, Cuba, and across the Dominican Republic and Haiti. So how much of coral around the world is likely to be affected by all of this? And by the way, where is the U.S. in this picture? About 38% probably will suffer the sort of prolonged high temperatures that cause bleaching by the end of this year globally. In the U.S., it's actually going to be worse. We're looking at maybe as high as 95%. But unfortunately, a lot of what we've been seeing this year was not driven by this strong El Nino right now, but by the warming that happened before that in 2014 and into early 2015. So as a result, our climate models show that 2016, the coral bleaching is likely to be even worse in some areas. And it looks like the warming in the Indian Ocean is going to be very extensive and much higher than what we saw this year. How much does water temperature have to increase for corals to get into trouble? Yeah, that's the surprising thing for most people is it's not that high. Really, we usually see water temperatures of one to two and a half degrees Celsius. So around one and a half to uh, three or four degrees Fahrenheit at most, above the warmest temperatures these corals normally see. Once you get past about one degree C, you are looking at enough stress that bleaching can start to kick in. And when that either goes higher up toward two, or when this is maintained, which is usually the case of a prolonged event, that's when you start to see bleaching. To what extent can you connect the dots between all this coral bleaching around the world and climate disruption? Well, that's not a very long line that you have to draw. Climate change has been increasing the water temperatures very consistently over the last several decades. And in fact, the first bleaching events we saw were in 82, 83, with a huge El Nino, maybe as big as 97, 98. But the bleaching was only in the Eastern Pacific and the Caribbean. Now we get up to 98, you've got a big event, it's on warmer water temperatures, you see a lot of bleaching. 2010, a moderate event, a lot of bleaching all around the world. The corals are already pushed near their limits to start with, and so it doesn't take much to go on top of it. The problem we're seeing now is this event has been going on since mid-2014, and this year, we've got the El Nino going on. We've also got this warm water mass in the northeastern Pacific called the Blob. 
And the two of those are conspiring with climate change to cause the bleaching that we're seeing right now in Hawaii. So we could be looking at an event that lasts at least two years, two and a half, uncertain how long. The Blob. I mean, is this a bad Hollywood movie? What is The Blob? The Blob is a mass of warm water in the northeastern Pacific that has been around for about a year or so. It is somehow related to a variety of climate cycles like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation and the Arctic Oscillation. It's probably related to climate change. There are other things that could be driving it. But to be honest, we don't really know quite what it is. How long does it take typically for a reef to uh, recover, at least start to recover from an event like this? Well, there are really two scales of recovery. First of all, when you have a bleaching event, it can take months for them to get those algae back. But when you're talking about a really severe event where the corals die, then it can take decades. And that's not even full recovery. These reefs may bounce back and look really good after 10, 15, 20 years. But all you're growing back at that point are the fast-growing corals. You can't regrow a 200-, 300-, 400-year-old coral in 10 or 20 years. Mark Aiken is coordinator for NOAA's Coral Reef Watch Program. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much, Steve. The worldwide bleaching of coral isn't the only unusual ocean phenomenon that's making waves this fall. Off the coast of California, a small seabird is challenging wildlife rescue experts, as Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has been finding out. Unless you're a sailor or you work on an oil rig, you've probably never seen a common myrrh. Usually these seabirds live nearly their entire lives at sea. But this summer, starving murrs have been washing up on the Pacific coast from Southern California to Alaska. Just about every day since the beginning of August, Eve Egan has gotten a call from a confused beachgoer saying, I know this is gonna sound crazy, but I see a penguin on the beach. <laughs> and we say, yeah, it's probably a murr because they are about, uh, well, a small size penguin, and they're black and white like a penguin, and their legs are situated really far in the back of their body. So when they stand up, they kind of do stand up like a penguin. Even her family run a small wildlife rehab center called Native Animal Rescue out of their home in Santa Cruz. They just got their first starving myrrh of the morning. This is our 348th myrrh for the year. Since August 4th, when we've been getting them every single day, we have gotten 278. Typically, Native Animal Rescue gets less than 40 murs a year. Eve says they've had big years before, but nothing like this. When we started getting five, six, ten a day, and every day this happening, we thought, wow, this is really different. This is much more than we've ever seen before. Eve's daughter, Lupin Egan, is the bird specialist in the family. She takes me back into an old laundry room they've converted into an intake facility. She opens up a cardboard carrying case, and inside there's a bedraggled myrrh. This one's kind of the feather, though, a little scruffy. They're molting right now, so a lot of them don't have the wing feathers in. This is the case with this one. He's pretty weak, but he's still got some life in him. Lupin tube feeds the myrrhs until they can eat fish on their own. This bird isn't moving much or making any noise, but it doesn't seem to mind Lupin picking it up. I go ahead and take him out. Use a towel to handle him and keep his head covered to keep him calmer. And then I'll just take him over here and open his mouth. And then go ahead and push the stuff down. 
pull the tube back out and cover him up again and put him back in his box. If this MERS survives a few more days, they'll transfer it further north to a larger facility called International Bird Rescue up the coast in Fairfield, California. Michelle Belize is the manager of International Bird Rescue. She says that with all the MERS coming in, they're just about at capacity. I know that we have 140 MERS in-house. I did a count today. We got in 30 yesterday, so we've got a full house. They keep the recent arrivals inside dry crates with towels on the floor. And what we do with these guys is a lot of them have lost their waterproofing because they're either on the beach too long and they've got feces or fish on them, so they come in and they can't become waterproof, and they live entirely on the water, and they need to be able to live in the water full-time to be able to forage. So what we do is we give them limited access to water, and then we give them these nice warm pens to dry in where they can preen their feathers and get that stuff up. When they get their waterproofing back, the MERS move outside into one of several circular tanks filled with water. There are about 30 MERS in this tank. For having been so close to death, they seem in pretty good spirits. Some zip around the surface, others dive beneath each other, and one is beating the water with its wings and splashing all of us. But J.D. Bergeron, the executive director of International Bird Rescue, says you can tell these birds aren't well. Their feathers are, are in pretty bad shape. These birds look like sleek, beautiful little penguins when they are in their, their best form. Um, you might be able to see a few in there that are kind of the smoother looking, but most of them look pretty haggard. <laughs> Our vet will kill me if I don't point out that, that though they look like penguins, they're more closely related to gulls. <laughs> they're very distantly related penguins. <laughs> The MERS in this tank come from several California rescue centers, like the one in Santa Cruz. So far, International Bird Rescue has taken in about 500 MERS this year. Michelle says that with so many coming in, they depend on an army of volunteers to keep up. Our volunteers range from college students to retirees, from Joe the plumber to rocket scientists. We actually had rocket scientists who were volunteering and who really preferred to play with cormorants. Who knew? Jennifer Linander is a rehab technician at the center. She says one of the biggest challenges has been getting enough food to go around. So we actually ordered about 1,000 pounds of fish for these guys, and we went through it in about a week. Um, we ordered another 1,000 pounds of fish, but it wasn't going to last long enough, so we had to order an additional four to 500 just to keep us going to feed all these MERS. Um, we're going about 160, 180 pounds a day of smelt for the MERS that we have in-house. They can eat about their body weight in a day. That's a lot of money for a small nonprofit. International Bird Rescue got started back in 1971 after a massive oil spill near the Golden Gate Bridge. A lot of their work comes after oil spills, but the financial equation is different this time around. You know, a spill that has a responsible party, like an oil spill, there's a responsible party where, you know, we get reimbursed for those. And since this is just a lack of food and all these guys that are starving, that are beaching themselves and being brought here, like this is all out of our expenditure, it's all out of our pocket. So right. we're having to try to find ways to pay for all these hungry birds to eat. The MERS washing up on shore don't have oil on them and they aren't sick, just hungry. Corey Gibble, the Seabird Health Program Coordinator at the Marine Wildlife Veterinary Care and Research Center in Santa Cruz, says that it likely has something to do with the mysterious blob of warm water that's been circulating in the North Pacific since the summer of 2014. If the water's warm or the oceanographic conditions aren't what they normally are, then oftentimes prey species aren't going to be where they normally are as well, and the birds may not know immediately where to go to find the prey species if they're not where they expected them to be. 
Lots of other birds feed on small fish like smelt and anchovies, but murres seem to be the only species affected. Corey and other scientists have a theory about why the murre may be particularly vulnerable, and it gets back to those shabby feathers. So when murres take care of their young, they go through this period where they're molting and they can't fly. It's a flightless molt for like one to two months after their chicks are hatched. We're in the middle of that molting period right now, and so Corey thinks it might be limiting the murre's ability to adjust to the changing location of their prey. If they happen to be flightless, but they're in an area with a good amount of food and they're diving for their food, it, it wouldn't affect them. But if they're stuck in a place potentially where there isn't the right amount of food and they can't fly somewhere else, then, you know, they could have this starvation issue. Laird Henkel, director of the Marine Wildlife and Veterinary Care Research Center, is quick to stress that this is only the best theory. He says that we just don't totally understand all of the ways climate change is impacting our ocean ecosystems. One phrase people are using these days is global weirding. Um, <laughs> and I think that that is something that uh, that we're seeing, that this, the quote-unquote blob of warm water offshore is something that's really never been seen before at this scale in the North Pacific. And I think we really don't understand the implications of that yet or what's causing it exactly. Laird says that while murres are the only seabird dying off right now, they're clearly not the only species that's suffering from strange water patterns in the North Pacific. It's hard to piece together what's going on with different species. So right now, common murres are mostly what we're seeing, but then unusual mortality event was declared by NOAA for Guadalupe fur seals. And earlier this year, there was a, a large, and, and last year, a significant mortality event for California sea lions. So a, a lot of animals feeding on forage fish in the California current are, have had issues over the last couple of years. Back at International Bird Rescue, J.D. Bergeron says that changes in the climate are giving them a lot more work to do. So this is a, a facility made to handle large numbers of birds, and every year we are seeing increasing numbers. This year already, we've beaten all of last year as early as mid-August. Mid we'd, we'd already surpassed it. So we are, this is our biggest year ever. In the past, International Bird Rescue mostly responded to oil spills. But bizarre die-offs and starvation events like this one are becoming more common. J.D. worries about how climate change will affect his work in the future, but for now, he's focused on the challenge that's immediately in front of him, getting all these birds back where they belong. He was on the boat when they released 19 murres near the Golden Gate Bridge. It, it was amazing. They uh, were immediately washing and preening and some of them diving, so doing all the stuff that they should be doing as wild birds right away. Amazing to watch. Um, we thought releasing 19 murres, we were actually going to start seeing a decrease in the number in care, and then we got 30 in yesterday. So we're not at the end of this. We just got to be keep going until, until all these birds have been taken care of. With a little luck and a lot of effort, the murres splashing around in this tank will be back at sea soon enough. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald in the San Francisco Bay. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation and brought to you from the campus of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Ellen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us. TUPress.org and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. PRI Public Radio International.